Welcome to Unleashed, the show that dishes about pets and their people. I'm Beth Adams. Coming up, we'll hear some intelligent conversation from an unusual bird. We're going to learn how to keep our dogs from jumping on our guests, and we're going to take a trip all over Greece with Gypsy the Rescue Pug. Right now, Dr. Eric Harima is in studio with us. He's director of Penfield Veterinary Hospital. Dr. Harima, thanks so much for being part of this show. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. If you have a question about your pet's health or behavior, you can give us a call at 1-844-295-TALK, or you can tweet your question to hashtag Unleashed. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Unleashed Pet Show. So, Dr. Haramuk, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to start out with a question of my own. Sure. And hopefully my cat, Sassy, won't mind my asking this. Uh, she's eight years old, just a domestic short hair cat. We adopted her at age two. And ever since we've known her, Sassy has had a drooling problem. She only seems to do it when she's purring and happy and content sitting in my lap or my husband's lap. And uh, it, it's kind of a disgusting problem. Uh, we had it checked out with our vet. She doesn't think it's a health problem. What do you think's going on there? And how could we get her to stop drooling? Well, I think uh, uh, you're not going to be able to get her to stop drooling, unfortunately, because as you had alluded to, she is a happy cat. And so, you know, the, um, the, the drooling comes from the fact that uh, most likely she's content and she's very relaxed. So as a result, her kind of parasympathetic tone is probably taking over. And when that kind of is stronger in the body, your salivation, or, you know, your, your salivation is going to be increased. So it's, it's kind of a natural reaction. Even though we were assured she doesn't have any health issues, could that ever be an indication of a health issue in a cat? Uh, certainly it could be. You know, if you think about drooling in general, uh, you know, if, if it's not necessarily a happy cat, you would worry about oral disease, um, potentially, you know, uh, a sore tooth. You know, cats can get tooth resorption. That can become issues, can become very painful in the mouth. Um, some cats with liver disease can, you know, show signs of uh, drooling as a, as a result of liver disease. So there could be other things going on, and it sounds like you've talked to your veterinarian and, and, and have ruled out those issues. And so I think you might need a, a bib for her or, or for your lap anyhow. <laughs> Just keep the paper towels handy. That's what you're <laughs> saying, right? We have a caller on the line. Steve, thank you so much for calling Unleashed. You're on with Dr. Harima. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Harima, I, I have a... a domestic mutt, a half beagle, half German short-haired pointer, who uh, is now about eight years old, but when she was about five, um, brought her into the vet for regular checkup, and the, the test they did in the, uh, in the office was positive for Lyme disease. They wanted to do an additional test, which they did, and, uh, but when it came back, they said, oh, well, even though she's positive, it came back at too low a level to be of concern. So can, can you explain that to me and sort of what I need to be uh, looking out for going forward? Sure. So when you say she's positive, generally what that indicates is that, um, you know, I presume they had done a, an annual heartworm and tick-borne test, and yeah. um, that is looking for or testing for antibodies that were made by your dog's immune system in response to the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. So, you know, what, what I would say is that your dog has been tested positive for being infected with a bacteria that can cause the clinical signs. Mm-hmm. Yet your dog is asymptomatic. Um, so what that means is that uh, she may carry that antibody titer for a while, and the, the additional tests that they had done 
um, was to kind of look and see whether that was uh, an acute reaction, meaning something that happened in the last few months, or something that happened, you know, two, three years ago. Mm. And so, you know, when you get a low titer test, you know, we can tell you that, you know, it probably happened a while ago. Um, if I can ask you a question, has she repeated positive on her heartworm and tick-borne tests, you know, moving forward in the past few years? Uh, yeah, she did. You know, she did uh, pretty much every time. Uh, now, I think the the that exposure, we used to take the dog down to uh, some property in Virginia where she was able to run through woods and fields a lot more uh, freely than she now does in her little typical suburban half acre. So uh, if I had to guess, that's probably where she was exposed, and we haven't taken her down there for years, and we probably won't ever again. So, um, But, yeah, each time we go in for the, the annual checkup and they do that, that uh, hardware screen, they come back and say, yep, it's positive, but, you know, if, if she's not acting differently, we probably shouldn't bother with the second test. Right, right. And so in, in the immune systems, you know, the response or the memory of the immune system can last for quite a while. So, you know, speaking personally, my own dog was positive, you know, uh, when we used to live in Pennsylvania, that's where she got infected. And um, I think it took about five to six years for her titer level to go down low enough where she was not positive on that test anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the, the tricky part about Lyme disease is that, um, you know, the bacteria can be intracellular. And what that means, it can actually hide in our body's own cells. So, you know, moving forward in the future, as long as you're aware of what the clinical signs of Lyme disease are and what to look for, you know, there may come a time, probably not, but, you know, if, if there's ever a time where she's showing really achy joints, general malaise, um, you know, not wanting to eat, vomiting, those are kind of the, the classic signs of the most common form of Lyme disease we see. I think moving forward, one of the things that uh, you can talk to your veterinarian about is monitoring the uh, protein levels in the urine because okay. sometimes you can get um, some silent forms of clinic, uh, Lyme disease that um, you wouldn't really be able to pick up on otherwise. And uh, so screening for protein can help make sure that kidneys are not being affected if there's, you know, uh, the, the antibody complexes getting into the kidneys and causing problems. Well, I appreciate your help. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. And good luck with your dog. It sounds like his dog, Steve's dog, is going to be in good shape. Two dogs now I've heard about in the last couple of minutes, yours and his, who have tested positive for Lyme disease. How common is that in dogs? You know, unfortunately, it's uh, becoming more and more uh, common. And it's a, it's a disease that uh, Steve had mentioned in Virginia. I mentioned Pennsylvania. Our area here is becoming more prevalent for, you know, infection with Lyme disease, not only in, in our pets, but in our people. And um, it's just a function of the uh, the deer tick that carries that bacteria is more prevalent in the environment as well. So unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of it. Any preventive measures we can recommend for folks with dogs in addition to keeping them out of those wooded areas where we know the deer ticks might be around? Sure. You know, so And that's the hard part is because we love our dogs and we love to go out in the woods and, and uh, let them off leash and, and you know let a dog be a dog for a little bit. And um, you know, so it's hard to keep them out of the environment and if you have deer in your backyard, there's a good chance you have ticks in your backyard. So prevention is a cornerstone, and our goal is to kill a tick before it can actually, you know, uh, inoculate the bacteria into the body. And we can do that by using there's there's many different means of prevention, whether it be oral medicines, topical medicines, you know, your classic flea and tick collars and that type of thing. But, yeah, so prevention is a cornerstone to making sure your dog does not get infected. And, you know, talking to your veterinarian about uh, an appropriate choice for your, for your dog is a great idea. And when people hear the term Lyme disease, that can be a little frightening. Can it be transmitted from 
animals to humans? No, essentially it, it has to go through the deer tick. And so the, the deer tick is the one that needs to, you know, kind of inoculate that bacteria into its host, whether it be a person or a dog or, you know, horse or anything in between. All right. We have a question now from Facebook from Sarah. Sarah is asking, how important is it to brush her dog and cat's teeth? Uh, she said they really, I can imagine this, they don't enjoy it, and she's not sure if it's really necessary. And if it is important, can you recommend ways to make this process a little less of an ordeal for both her and her pets? So it's a, it's a great question, and um, yes, it is important. And uh, it's something that um, it is hard to, to you know, think about uh, that becoming a daily routine for, for you and your pet. Um, why is it important? You know, uh, our, our teeth are the same as our, our pets, and essentially... You know, we're expected to brush twice a day, floss at least once a day, go see our dentist, you know, a couple times a year for cleanings. You know, we don't expect that uh, necessarily for our pets. But, you know, if we keep the teeth healthy, keep the gums healthy, you know, the mouth can be a staging point for bacteria that gets into the system otherwise. And it can also be very painful, you know, if they have oral disease. So the more that we can get um, our pet owners to address at-home pet care for the mouth, you know, uh, on a daily basis, it's going to lead to a better quality of life for that pet. I have to tell you, I can't imagine Sassy letting me do this. Is Are there any ways that we can make it a little bit easier for the pet? Pets love to eat food. Most pets do. And so food is a good driving force to make it a positive experience. So if you are involving feeding, you know, with brushing, so if you bring out the brush and toothpaste and, you know, uh, start slowly with your pet and, you know, introduce that before feeding time, they might be a little bit more open to that. Starting slow and letting them just uh, kind of lick the toothpaste off of a toothbrush for a few weeks and, and get used to, you know, this thing that's in front of them and the stuff that's on it. And obviously taste is an important factor, and, and there's lots of different uh, flavors of toothpaste, you know, for the pets to enjoy. And and generally, you can't expect to get into a mouth and be able to get after it right away. Mm-hmm. It takes time and patience, just like anything else, and, you know, just being uh, uh, consistent as well. And a good sense of humor. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Dr. Eric Harima is here to answer your questions about pet health. You can join the conversation by calling 1-844-295-TALK, or you can tweet your questions to hashtag Unleashed. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Unleashed Pet Show. And there you can share photos of your pet. We'd love to see them. There was a documentary film crew from the U.K. and Rochester last winter. They weren't here to follow the mysterious cow wolf or trace the path of bald eagles over the Adirondacks. They were here to see and hear Disco the Parakeet. Juan Vasquez got to meet Disco and talk with him. A parakeet? What is it? A green bird that talks? Disco is a green parakeet, a budgie, that lives in Penfield, New York, with his owners Judy and Kevin Bolton, their daughter, a dog, and a guinea pig. Disco gets a lot of talk time with his family. All of our animals, we talk to them all the time, and they're all verbal in their own way. Well, he is too, but he's mimicking us. Disco has lived with the Boltons for three and a half years. I would say within a, within a month or two after his starting to talk, we realized that he was an excellent mimic, and he had a funny personality anyway. He was very playful and, and very sociable with us. But within a few months, he would just mimic pretty much anything we would throw at him. And it didn't seem to matter how long the phrase was or 
what sound there was attached to it, he could do it. What seems to be the problem, Judy was amazed by Disco's ability to mimic, so she started recording his chatter and posting the videos so she could share him with her friends and extended family. Parakeets are known for mishmash, so whether it's sound or human speech that they're mimicking, they will start mashing things together. So we were teaching him, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, the Monty Python quote. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Well, even though we hadn't necessarily taught him all the words and he doesn't mimic things from radio or TV, he, he obviously hears other words. We say doctor usually, we don't say physician, but one day he's practicing and he comes out with, nobody expects a Spanish physician. Nobody expects the Spanish is it. Nobody expects the Spanish is it baby bird. He sings his name, he'll go, Dishka! Dishka! He sings his own variant of the Flintstones theme song. It's, you know, Disco, Meet the Disco. Well, at the end, he really tries to match the pitch, and he'll go up an octave and down an octave, and he seems to have fun with it. And just listening to him do those things, it just makes you laugh because it's oftentimes just ridiculous. Disco, Meet the Disco. He's a tapping, tapping, In addition to recording disco, the Boltons have started transcribing his rants so they could add subtitles to the YouTube videos. A lot of what you're hearing is from Disco's YouTube account. Millions of people have flocked there to see him. Well, suddenly people are commenting and we don't know them. They're not friends, they're not family, they're just people. Wow, is that real or hey, he's cool. So eventually one of them coerced me, convinced me that we should get a Facebook page for him, which I thought, come on, a Facebook page for an animal? Get, get real. What you talking about, Disco? What you talking about, Disco? Come on, Disco. What you talking about, Disco? Finally, I agreed to do it thinking, you know, three people would look at his page. And let's see, that's been about three years, and uh, he now has well over 63,000 fans on Facebook. And eventually, yes, I got him a Twitter account. So he tweets on Twitter and he's got a number of fans on there and he's got about 30,000 subscribers on YouTube and he's on Google Plus. And people always say, well, how do you train him? What's your training regimen? There is none. It's his playing with us. It's his interacting with us. There's no, um, you know, drill sergeant type of training going on. Um, he mimics from us directly even if we record our voices he finds it interesting but he's not going to mimic that he's mimicking us because it's interaction it's it's being social it's playing so people say well he mimics he's just aping you he's parroting you there's no real thought in there i'm not i'm not convinced that's the case at this point while the boltons have their own theory about why disco talks so much most researchers would take issue with the use of the word talk dr carl berg is an assistant professor of avian ecology in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Texas. Lots of animals can hear and, and memorize certain sounds, but then he wasn't putting them together in any kind of coherent manner that had anything to do with the context if he was talking. You know, no doubt, it's amazing how human-like it is, right? But, but again, is he conjugating his own sentences? Most people would argue no. Whether Disco understands what he is saying or just mimics for attention, doesn't really matter to the Boltons. They just love to laugh. And if it's the attention that Disco's looking for, he's getting it. With well over 4 million views on YouTube, 
Disco is flying high. <laughs> you cannot listen to Disco and not laugh and smile. You can watch and listen to Disco on his YouTube page. We have a link to his page on our Unleashed Facebook page, and that's uh, facebook.com slash Unleashed Pet Show. Dr. Harima, I have to ask you, where do you come down on the issue of disco speech? You've seen the video. You've just heard the report. Is he actually understanding the words that he's saying, or is he just mimicking the sounds in his environment? Well, I guess I would have to defer the expert opinion uh, that we just heard about and that he is mimicking. But, um, you know, I, I think there's something to be gained for what he's learning how to do, and he's getting reinforcement from it. So it's a, it's a social, you know, uh, event for him, and obviously his, his people nurture that, and he's an exceptional parakeet who um, thrives on it, I think. So I think his mimicry, you know, if, if I walked in the house and he said, Hey, Rick, how are you doing? Or, you know, hey, what's going on? Did you have a good day? And I said it was a good day. What happened? Then I'd think, okay, maybe there's some more dialogue or talk going on, but I think it's just something that he, he enjoys it. He gets reinforced in doing it, and um, he's pretty awesome. Great entertainment, that's for sure. Thanks, Dr. Harima. Dr. Harima is joining us from Penfield Veterinary Hospital on this pilot episode of Unleashed. This is our very first program, and based on your feedback, we may make Unleashed a weekly call-in show. So be sure to share your ideas, your feedback with us. Leave a post on our Facebook page or email us directly. The email address is unleashed at wxxi.org. A little later in the program, you'll meet a very special pug on the run called Gypsy. This is Unleashed on member-supported WXXI. This is Unleashed. We're talking about pet behavior and health. Dr. Eric Harima is here. If you have a question about your pet's health, you can give us a call at 1-844-295-TALK. Let's take a call from David. David, welcome to Unleashed. you have a question for Dr. Harima? Uh, yes, I do, and thank you for, uh, for taking my call. Doctor, we have a, an, an elder dog called Saffron. She's, uh, we're guessing, 17 years of age. We've, she's a shelter dog. We've had her for about 12, and they told us that they thought she was about five at the time we adopted her. And she's, you know, she's slowed. Uh, she sleeps a great deal, but appears to not be in any kind of suffering. She's deaf, has little arthritis, and we think uh, we, she has some collapsing trachea. She coughs about three or four times a day, but, you know, it, it resolves itself. Uh, and she still chases the occasional squirrel. But my question is basically, uh, what should we be uh, feeding her? Is there anything we should be adding to maybe help her uh, prolong her life or at least make sure she's not in any kind of stress? Well, I think in, in general, it, uh, as far as feeding is concerned, um, you know, I, I assume she's on a uh, an age-appropriate diet. There are senior diets out there, and uh, you know, for for our geriatric dogs that are generally just going to be lower in calories, so that uh, as they're getting older, they're not putting on extra weight, which can mm-hmm. certainly stress the joints and um, and you know body condition in general. You know, so from a standpoint of uh, you know whatever you're feeding her, if she's liking it and consistent with eating and having routine. Um, you know, uh, bowel movements and thirst and urination are appropriate, then I wouldn't change a thing that you're doing. Um, I, I think the most important thing is that, as you had mentioned, the arthritis, um, you know, our goal is to keep our, our uh, dogs, uh, you know, pain-free or as painless as possible. So is she on any chronic medications at this point? What I add to her food is I grind up a baby aspirin. Okay. I, you know, and uh, she has uh, one tablet of uh, 
glucosamine and chondroitin that we add to our food as well. Okay. But that's, that's the only thing that we're adding. Great. And so, you know, certainly the baby aspirin, um, as far as an over-the-counter, you know, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, you know, that, that we use for people as well, um, as long as that's not, you know, long-term that can cause some problems, you know, um, you know, for the platelet function, just like we take it for the purpose of, um, you know, inhibiting platelets and prevention of strokes. Um, while our dogs don't uh, typically suffer from uh, uh, strokes, you know, they can still, you know, if she were to, you know, uh, get cut or, or have a laceration or something like that, um, bleeding might be a little bit uh, more harder to control. But if she tolerates it well from a gastrointestinal standpoint and she feels better with it than without, you know, it's okay to continue to use. I think that's something you would, uh, you know, maybe want to follow up with your veterinarian just looking at routine lab work just to make sure her liver and kidney enzymes are functioning well, you know, in, in receiving that medicine on a daily basis. And um, certainly the joint supplement, um, you know, not going to hurt her and certainly has the potential to help. So I think you're doing all the right things for her. You know, I think the uh, the biggest thing as well is, you know, you said when she has her moments, uh, when she wants to chase squirrels and that type of thing, just encouraging her to get routine exercise on a daily basis because bottom line is the more sedentary they become, the more muscle atrophy is going to set in and, and you know, it's just going to, it's kind of a vicious cycle. So making sure you're getting her up for routine walks. It doesn't have to be, you know, like she used to do five, 10 years ago, but um, keeping the uh, the legs moving and, and keeping her engaged and um, uh, doing the best that you can to, um, you know, keep her active because uh, that that will just perpetuate her longevity as well. Okay. Terrific. Yeah. She she doesn't like to go for those walks any longer. Uh, you know, she paces around the house a little bit if she is not sure where we are. Uh, but once she finds us, she wants to get up and sit in the lap and be very quiet. I can't blame her. I think I would, too, if I were 17 years of age. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> David, say hi to Saffron for us, and thanks again for the call. Dr. Harima, David mentioned the aspirin, which you said was okay as long as the dog's blood tests come back okay. Uh, when I think about the aches and pains humans have and the, some of the things we take, like ibuprofen or Tylenol, among the choices that we have, what do we want to avoid with our pets? Well, I think uh, the the latter two medicines you just mentioned, certainly you would not want to use in, uh, in cats or dogs in general. And aspirin, you know, some dogs tolerate it very well. You know, I have clients who say, oh, yeah, my dog's been on aspirin for three years now, and, and it doesn't seem to bother them. But you could take another dog and put them on aspirin within two to three days. You know, they could have, you know, some severe issues regarding ulceration of the stomach and that type of thing. So there are lots of medicine choices out there, lots of them that have been tested and approved, you know, by the FDA and, and uh, you know, in long-term studies. And so that's something you want to have a discussion with your veterinarian about uh, what are the appropriate medicines, um, because there's lots of them out there, and we have lots of options for them and we just want to make sure that in trying to keep them you know uh, pain-free and, and healthy and happy that we're not causing detriment to their system as well good to remember let's go to our next caller leanne is here thanks so much for calling unleash leanne do you have a question for dr harima i sure do i was wondering i have an indoor cat and my parents have an outdoor cat and i was wondering should they be getting the same kind of care meaning the same vaccines and the same shots? That's a great question. And uh, typically for the kitty who is going outdoors, there's an additional vaccine that we recommend for outdoor kitties that's called the feline leukemia vaccine. And uh, feline leukemia is a virus that is spread uh, through you know, salivary transmission. So typically cats who are positive carriers in the environment, um, if they're getting in fights with you know, your, your cat and... Um, 
you know, uh, when bitten, the, the virus is transmitted through the saliva. So for our outdoor cats, we like them to have that vaccine so they can have the protection, you know, from uh, you know, their own immune system to fight against the, uh, the virus if it's put into the body. Now, certainly um, indoor cats, if they're truly indoor and they're not going outside, the risk of exposure is pretty minimal um, in the fact that uh, they certainly shouldn't be given by other cats. So, you know, for a truly indoor cat, um, you know, we wouldn't, uh, you know, recommend using that vaccine. Um, as far as treating cats the same, whether they're indoor or outdoor, certainly with the exception of that one vaccine, they should they should all be treated the same. A lot of people aren't okay, in the Okay, so that would include a rabies shot for the indoor cat, even though the indoor cat never goes outside. Uh, definitely, yes. From a public health standpoint, um, what we know about rabies is that uh, uniformly it kills. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients call us up and say, my cat just killed a bat and it's in the house. What do I do? And mm -hmm. so a bat is a very common vector for spreading rabies. So that's a perfect example of how theoretically an indoor cat could get infected with rabies. And if not up to date or not vaccinated for rabies, now you're at risk. And uh, certainly we want to protect our pets, but we need to protect mm -hmm. you as well. Of course. Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. Thanks for calling, Leanne. And while we're talking about cats going outdoors, and we heard earlier, Dr. Harima, about dogs and Lyme disease, can cats also get Lyme disease from a deer tick bite? It's a great question, and there are a few documented cases of uh, Lyme disease in cats, and um, you know, so we truly don't know necessarily why they're not as susceptible. I think cats are very good groomers, so they may actually get rid of the ticks before the ticks are on long enough to actually, you know, spread the transmission of, of the bacteria into their body. Um, but, uh, but yes, it has been documented, but I can honestly say in, in 11 years of veterinary medicine, I have not diagnosed a case of that in cats. So. All right. Thank you. Our next caller is Lisa. Lisa, thanks so much for calling. What's your question for Dr. Harima? Well, I have a nine-year-old Bichon Fusé. She's um, a purebred, and I'm confused because she recently has developed tearing in her eyes, and um, it's staining. Now, the thing that confuses me is she didn't really have any um, experience of this except about two years ago when it developed. So when it, when it did develop, is it something that you see, um, th you've seen entirely through the course of the year, or does it come and go? It's, it's throughout the year. Okay. We've, uh, we've tried changing foods. We've, you know, we clean it with some of the eye wipes. Um, but it starts to smell and really bother her, too. Sure. My question is, is what's the cause and, and what can we do about it? Well, it, uh, sometimes, you know, the, the cause can be, uh, I can honestly say it'd be hard to, to figure out. Um, you know, the reason I was ask, asking if it's related to the seasons or not, uh, allergies, you know, certainly are something that, um, you know, can cause inflammation in the body. If you think about where the tear ducts are in the, uh, you know, the, the conjunctiva of the eye and the third eyelid, um, if you get inflammation in that area, you know, you can get some clogged ducts. Sometimes ducks can just get clogged up on their own, and um, you know the ability to unclog them is 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 doable. But um, you know certainly being a smaller dog, you may need some anesthesia to try and you know just determine if the if the ducks themselves are clogged. So if the ducks are clogged, you're not going to get the tearing going down in through the nasolacrimal duct. Rather, they're going to spill over you know the eyelid. You know if it's allergic related, you can't. It's hard to hard to figure that out and uh, hard to prevent it. I think. The best thing you can do is, on a daily basis, you know, keep the keep that area free and clean of clean of any discharge or, you know, any of the the dry crusties that'll form. Should I be using it like a hot 
washcloth compress type thing, doctor, or should I be using these these medical wipes that we buy at the pet stores? The uh, I guess uh, medical wipes um, is, is there an ingredient in there like an antibiotic or you know just something that um, that makes them quote medical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, what I hear you saying also is that if they're permanently clogged, there's there's nothing that I can do as the pet owner, and I may have to come in and see a vet who can surgically or under anesthesia check the ducts? Yes, yes. So that's something that uh, if they're clogged, they can be unclogged. Uh, you know, sometimes we're successful in doing that. Other times we're not. But, um, you know, so that would be, you know, if they're just clogged and they just need to be unclogged, you know, that's an easy fix. But um, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not that easy. And is, it, is it painful or is it is it just un, uh, uncomfortable and annoying to her? I think where the pain comes from is that, um, do you, do you, let me ask this, do you, do you trim the hair around her eyes and keep that very low? Um, yes, yeah, I, I don't do that myself, of course. I take her to a groomer every six weeks. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's something where as long as you're, you know, keeping the uh, any of the crust from forming outside of the eye, because those crusts kind of adhere to the skin, um, because of the hair, and then that can become irritating and can get localized infection or inflammation. You know, I, I guess in my experience, I would say with good routine care, just using, you know, a warm washcloth, you know, and keeping it clean on a daily basis and keeping the hair short, you know, is going gonna, is gonna to keep her comfortable. All right. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. Thank you, Lisa. You can tweet your questions to us at hashtag Unleashed. You can also find us on Facebook, where we'll be posting photos and answers to your questions throughout the hour. Our Facebook address is facebook.com slash Unleashed Pet Show. Does this ever happen to you? It's time for an Unleashed 5-Minute Solution, where animal behavior experts give us a quick answer to a common problem. Today, it's jumping. When your dog jumps on people, it is at the very least annoying and at worst dangerous. My goal when I work with people in my classroom is to get them to be the guys that can actually, honest to God, bring their dog to the family picnic and, you know, the rest of the family doesn't go, oh God, they brought the dog. Bob Minchella is a consultant who's been training dogs, or as he says, training people for nearly 30 years. Juan Vesquez visited Bob at Dogs at Play a dog daycare center in Rochester, New York. There, Bob gave Juan a quick lesson on how to keep your dog's feet on the floor. According to Bob Minchella, jumping is a normal part of dog culture. Dogs greet each other face to face. If you watch two dogs that have never ever met each other, they greet face to face first and then they do this head to tail sniffing rather disgusting thing and then it's kind of a big deal about who gets on top of who, but that's a whole different subject. So if you don't want your dog to jump on people, you're going to have to train her not to do it. Here's how. Step one, get the dog under control. If you're coming home and the dog is greeting you at the door, have a leash right there that's maybe tethered off to a doorknob or something. And when you're let down there and saying hi to your dog, hook your dog to the leash. Little collar, little leash, six footer, and as soon as you stand up, you can step back not allowing the dog to self-gratify itself by jumping on you. Step two, get the people under control. Teach your friends and neighbors, and this is the most difficult part, to ignore the dog until it sits. What we're trying to do is you sit, you get my attention. If you jump, you get ignored. And it helps to add a little treat here and there. I have a lot of people that have little decorative baskets right next to the door where people come in with a bag full of treats because the crinkling sound of a treat bag is an incredible cue to a dog. They figure out real quick what to do. Sit, things come out of the bag. 
Minchella says the key to this kind of control is to first ensure the dog can't jump and then to reward the dog when it sits. Minchella says the leash and treats method is the best because it sets up a positive experience in the dog's brain, something she doesn't get if you just pull the dog away or grab her. Yelling at the dog or grabbing the dog. If every time you met somebody for the first time or whatever, you were getting corrected. After a while, you might not like strangers coming into the house. Now you're starting to set up all kinds of problems. What if you just try to calm the dog down by holding her or petting her? You know, Uncle Harry comes over and Fluffy's barking his brains out at Uncle Harry and you try to calm down Fluffy and you're petting him. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's Uncle Harry. But unfortunately, Fluffy doesn't understand English. What Fluffy understands is you're petting me and talking to me nicely and you must want me to kill Uncle Harry. So the idea is to not put your hands on the dog because that will actually encourage the dog to continue whatever behavior is going on. To put our training into action, we invited Carrie Matiosian and her puppy Bibi over. I left the room for a while while Bob and Carrie worked together with Bibi. All right, well, let's make sure we have a leash ready to go uh, so that when they get here, we can immediately get the dog on a leash. Should they be able to touch her, or do I need to stand far enough away that they, she can't get to me? You're going to want to position yourself so the end, your leash length, to the point where the dog cannot make body contact to the people coming into the home. Hi, Carrie. Carrie positions herself and the visitors beyond where a now-leashed BB can reach any of them. Now, what I would like these guys to do for you is to ignore the dog until it sits. And if you would like to add a little reward to this, you can grab that little bag of treats that we have nicely next to the door. So you and, want to grab the treats now? Yeah, there you go. You yeah, already got the, res you already got the response that you wanted. So we control what we don't want, we reward what we do want, and we make sure the humans cooperate. Minchella says those ideas work for more than just jumping. Be the one that decides when things occur in the dog's life. I mean, it's simple examples. The dog goes to the door and barks and cries and whines, and somebody jumps up and lets the dog in and out. Well, great, I got a door mate. And I can come over and bug you with a toy, and you'll play with me. Hey, I got a litter mate when I want one. And I can come over and bug you until you pet me. Hey, I got a masseuse when I want one. What a wonderful lifestyle I have here. I have a two-legged servant. Minchella says controlling unwanted behavior and rewarding good behavior helps dog owners to be good leaders. And leadership, he says, is what every dog really wants. Well, I imagine you get questions like this all the time, Dr. Harima. What do you see as your role as the vet? What role do you play in, the, in behavior issues with your clients' dogs? Uh, we play a huge role in that, in that part in the fact that, um, you know, whether we're talking about um, puppies and kittens, uh, you know, from, from the first day they've come into the house or, you know, the, uh, the middle-aged dog or the older dog that develop behavioral issues. And, um, you know, our, our first job, first and foremost, is to hear our clients and, and the issues that they have at hand. And then based on the relevant history and, uh, you know, clinical signs that may be being manifested, uh, try and figure out, you know, does this truly sound like a behavioral issue that is not as a result of a medical issue? And if it is not, then talk about behavior in a very superficial level. When I see a client for a 20, 30-minute appointment, there's no way I'm going to be able to hash out, you know, the uh, all the problems of the dog within that time frame. It's really kind of setting some expectations. And kind of much like uh, uh, Bob would say, um, a lot of our 
problems with our pets are because our pets are masters at training us versus us <laughs> training the pet. I'm guilty and, of that for sure. Yes, yeah. and it's very easy to do. So um, we try and identify the issues, you know, and then, um, you know, kind of put some tools in place to, uh, you know, help owners, you know, uh, get to a better place with the use of in-home trainers is a, is, uh-huh. a, is a huge, you know, asset to have. And working with the client, the trainer, and us, you know, sometimes medicines are needed and that type of thing to try and, you know, get to the root cause of the problems and help the people, you know, figure out the issues and, and retrain them as well. And when it's not a medical issue but a be- really a behavioral issue, it sounds like a communication breakdown. You know, you, you need to understand what your pet is trying to tell you through his or her behavior. Yes, I would yeah. say probably 99% of our behavioral issues are communication breakdowns. We just didn't realize we had communication to begin with, or <laughs> maybe we need to reestablish the lines of communication. We're here with Dr. Eric Harima from Penfield Veterinary Hospital, and you are listening to Unleash, the show that dishes about pets and their people. You're listening to Unleashed. This is our very first program, and based on your feedback, we may turn Unleashed into a weekly call-in show. So be sure to share your ideas and your feedback with us. Leave us a post on our Facebook page or email us directly at unleashed at wxxi.org. In November 2013, as snow blasted a path through western New York, a pug, lost and scared, fought for her life, and no one seemed to be looking for her. Brenda Trombley has the story of Pug Love. She spoke with a big-hearted people determined to bring this lost dog in from the cold. Jennifer Everett, an EMS worker and known animal lover and advocate, heard about this pug running through her hometown, darting through traffic on some of the busiest roads in the area. And the pug was scared, really scared, of people. She was terrified of humans. She had, sadly, never known the kindness of humans. She had always just been a commodity. And then we found out she didn't really have a home. Nobody was looking for her. Knowing every minute counted, if they were going to bring this pug in alive, Jennifer had to act fast to enlist the help of as many people as possible. So she set up a Facebook page that said, Operation Grease Pug Rescue in Effect. Working with her friends, Carla Iannucci and Carol Bartell Everett named the dog Gypsy because of her wide travels, and they activated a wide network of people to help track her through the streets of Greece and the surrounding area. There were days where it was two and five degrees out where she was living through the night. And if you're familiar with a pug's coat, they don't really have much of an undercoat. So the level of anxiety went up for a lot of people, worried about would she make it through the nights? Was she even going to live? What we would do is we would ask people to spot her and let us know where they see her so that we could set up a feeding station and try to get her to eat in a location. And then we would try to set a trap. Hundreds of people started looking and posting, strangers working together for the good of Gypsy. But Gypsy was quick, and it was clear to those trying to keep tabs on her that they were going to need to use technology that could track her in real time. One of the things that we use is Google Maps, and we set up a map of where the dog started from and then the path that they're taking. Jennifer points to some paw prints on the northwest corner of the map where the suburb of Greece is located. So Gypsy started up here where there's a paw print, and we can change the icons. And if you look on the side here, there's notes. This is where Gypsy was spotted. We continued following her. This is where down in the city uh, had the help of RPD and the pause truck from point A to C. And as she traveled through the town of Greece and the city of Rochester, we could update her map online and people could go directly to the link and see if Gypsy was in their neighborhood or in their area. Shelley Pion was one of the people who got plugged into Gypsy's plight. 
The pug had first been spotted on the run on Shelley's birthday, and Shelley was already an owner of a pug, so she felt a special connection to the pup, and she was terrified that Gypsy would not make it out alive. Once I saw her Facebook page and a little bit of her backstory, that was it. There was no sleeping, no nothing. Everything revolved around this little girl in the dead of winter. We would lay in bed at night. I mean, we would pray for her that she would just be kept safe another day. She was always just one step ahead. We would be in an area flyer in heavily, and then a call would come in, and we would be right there. We were on that street. We were one street over. I mean, this happened several times. Sometimes I wondered if she was even real. (laughs) Which is why, in the new world of lost pets, old-school methods still have value. Hey, would you take a look at this flyer? If you've seen this dog... While using high-tech tools, Operation Grease Pug Rescue posted flyers in the neighborhoods where Gypsy was spotted, and they called on some of their friends in high places. I know some of the 911 dispatchers. They may have called and said, that pug you're trying to find is over here. And the police officers knew we were looking for, animal control knew we were looking for. And a school bus driver called and saw her on Emerson Street. She was heading south into the city now. It was almost like a unfolding drama episode. People were captivated on Facebook as Gypsy's seen here, Gypsy's here. Two weeks of searching through snow, traffic, and cold led Operation Grease Pug Rescue to the day before Thanksgiving. It was sort of game over. There was a big storm coming in. Everybody was terrified that she wouldn't make it through the storm. How would she even be able to get through the snow with those little pug legs? So this map allowed us to stay live the entire time, and we would repost the link so people could follow to see where little Gypsy had been along the way. Last grease sighting, crossing Westridge Road towards the Hess station, like her ass was on fire. That was what the lady called it in an S. She saw her on a flyer. And then, in a cold industrial park, surrounded by chain-link fence, an impromptu team of strangers raced around buildings, cornering Gypsy as she desperately looked for a way out. You can see down here where there's a whole bunch of paw prints. This is where we caught her in the end. This was all the people pulled in here, closed the gate, completely fenced. Somebody was able to pick her up. There's no way to describe the rewarding feeling of finding that lost dog, finding the lost pet, and then also handing it back to their owner. There's no way to describe it. So that's kind of what drives you. But Gypsy didn't have an owner, so now it was time to find her a home. I had the pleasure of four people that were excellent homes for her. Not every dog out there has that luxury, but her story was so sensational and everybody knew about it locally here that I had I could handpick who I felt was best for Gypsy. One of those four was who else but Shelly Pion. I figured with the amount of people at this point were in love with her and involved, I just thought, wow, there's no way we would probably stand a chance. In the meantime, we had a son who was deployed, and Christmas was difficult. He had just left at the beginning of December, so we were struggling. My daughter and her husband pulls in the driveway on Christmas morning and handed me a card. I opened the card, and there was a little pug on the front of the card in a Christmas outfit. And I opened it up. It said, Merry Christmas. I'm yours. Love, Gypsy.
Wow, he certainly loved a happy ending to his story. You can help the organization Operation Gypsy bring home other dogs and cats by going to their Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Operation Gypsy. And we also put a link up on our Facebook page to Unleashed Pet Show. Dr. Eric Harima is in studio with us. In this case, Dr. Gypsy obviously didn't have a home to go to until she met her new family. But you must hear from people all the time who lose their pets. Walk us through, if you would, the steps we should take if we lose our dog or cat. The first thing I think, uh, the most important thing is, you know, in recognizing that they've disappeared, get out there early and and get to the masses. And, um, you know, doing so by, you know, calling animal control, you know, visiting shelters, uh, you know, in your local area here in the city would be Rochester Animal Services and uh, um, lollipop farm. And actually going there, right, to see if your pet is physically there because they, I'm sure, are keeping track of a lot of animals. Yes, uh, you know, a physical description over the phone is much different than seeing. And so I could talk to someone over the phone and say, I'm looking for a black and tan dog who's about 50 pounds. Well, that could fit the description of maybe 10 or 15 dogs in a, in a current facility. So, you know, getting in front of someone and getting to be able to look at and see the, the, the dogs that have been turned in recently. I think one of the things you also want to do is call your town office because towns have contracts with some of the veterinary offices in the neighborhood. You know, so when animal control picks up dogs, they don't go right to a shelter. They'll go into a holding facility at one of the veterinary facilities. You know, depending on which town you know you're, you're you live in. You know, maybe um, you know Pittsburgh takes care of Brighton. Uh, Pittsburgh Animal Hospital will take care of the Brighton and um, Penfield and Pittsburgh areas. Stone Ridge takes care of Greece. Um, so you just need to figure that out. And um, and that's a good point. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's yeah. good to call them as well because from a, a standpoint of holding, they'll hold on to them for 10 days and um, monitor for signs of rabies and things like that. And, and so that's a good starting point as well. What about microchipping? Is that the gold standard in terms of preventing uh, loss? It uh, It's not going to prevent loss. It's going to certainly help recovery. Um, so certainly uh, you, your pets can run away. But um, when we have animals that turn up, you know, clients will call or, or people just say, we found this dog. We can't take care of it. Can you take it? You know, we're hoping you can find, you know, find its rightful owner. First thing we do is scan it. And if we've got a chip number, um, that chip number can go, you know, we, we get a number to call and we call the number and say, who is this registered to? Sometimes you find that, um, you know, a chip is only as good as the person who keeps it registered in their name and their address and that type of thing. So it's very important to make sure you're keeping that information up to date. But uh, it's invaluable in order to um, to guarantee or help guarantee a, a quick recovery. And I would think in a case like this, this is one time you want to you want to uh, get a hold of the power of social media. Yes, without a doubt. Um, you know, I, I can tell you we've had a couple experiences. Um, you know, we have a Facebook page for our, our veterinary hospital and. Um, if you look at the, you know, the, the visits that, you know, are coming to the website, we had one dog who got turned into our facility, took a pit, picture of him, happened to be a pit bull, you know, really, really nice dog, put it on our Facebook page, and within a day, within that day, we had found his owner already, but within a day, I think our Facebook page had 30,000 hits. Wow. Which is probably more than we had in five months prior. I, I don't know what the numbers were, but it was astronomical how many people were actually tuning in to see, okay, you know, do I know who this dog is or who it belongs to? Yeah, just yeah. like Gypsy, I think they follow the story and they want exactly. to have a good ending. What if you do find a lost pet? Is it okay to keep it after a while? What what should you do? No, it, it, uh, it's it's a moral dilemma because sometimes we have some, uh, some pets who befriend us and next thing you know, they're living out of our backyard like the stray cat and that type of thing. But um, 
you know, you want to make sure that uh, the pet doesn't belong to somebody else. And um, we have actually had a scenario where some people brought in a cat, we scanned it, and it turned out to be the neighbor behind the street. And, you know, it was kind of an awkward situation. But, um, yeah, you want to make sure you, you, you turn, turn them in and make sure that no one is looking for them because what you found, someone else might be missing tremendously. Good information. Thank you, Dr. Harima. We have time for one last question uh, from a caller at 844-295-TALK. Shalise, thanks so much for your patience. You're on with Dr. Harima. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I have a number of clients that are dog owners, and many times they ask for advice about uh, interactions between other people and their dog. For example, they may have a really big playful, happy, fuzzy dog that other people or their children are eager to approach, assuming the dog wouldn't hurt them. Or on the other hand, they might have a dog that looks intimidating despite being very well trained and a really, really kind dog. And I just wondered what suggestions you have for dog owners in communicating with other people as to whether their dog should be approached and whether that's a welcome gesture from either adults or children. A great question. Yes, I would agree. And I think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we can be certainly be an advocate for our pets. And, um, you know, if, if we're sure that uh, our pets are you know going to be favorable to meeting strangers or, you know, uh, other people in general, you know, let people know. If you're in the park and you're walking the dog and you, you kind of see people taking interest yet, you know, are a little maybe standoffish, you know, let them know, hey, this is this is my dog Fluffy and, and she's not going to hurt. And, you know, as Bob had alluded to, you know, good training goes a long way. So if you can show that your dog can sit and stay and, you know, allow a stranger to approach and, uh, you know, it's wagging its tail, you know, I think that's going to be a, go a long way to, um, you know, being an advocate for your pet and, and helping other people, you know, kind of um, breach that gap and not be so um, potentially intimidated depending on, you know, what kind of uh, pet we're talking about. Absolutely. I, and um, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, can you can we always assume that our dog is going to be friendly to any approaching stranger? I think you can never assume uh, because, you know, that that can be problematic. And, um, you know, you could have the best dog in the world. And under certain circumstances, you know, they are just like uh, just like uh, people. You know, they can have a reaction you don't expect. You know, so that's something where a lot of training goes a long way to, you know, hopefully guaranteeing that you're going to have good interactions. But um you know, sometimes there can be other issues at hand and you're not recognizing them and you could have a unfortunate situation. They have moods just like we do, sure. right? Thank you, Dr. Eric Harima from Penfield Veterinary Hospital. We so appreciate you joining us and sharing your expertise on this pilot episode of Unleashed. Thanks for having me. It's been a great time. This program was made possible by a generous gift from Ben Kendig, working to create a society where all creatures and species are treated with respect and dignity. You can help us shape the future of Unleashed by participating in our online poll at interactive.wxxi.org unleashed. Our production team includes Valerie LaBanca, Andrew Croucher, Fiona Willis, Juan Vesquez, Elisa Orlando, and Jean Fisher. I'm Beth Adams. Thanks for listening to Unleashed.